Seven minutes past 9 a.m. on this Sunday morning. We've been taking some time every Sunday to check in with some of the nominees for BC Book Prizes. Some absolutely fantastic books out there and interesting different stories and things you might not have known about the province and elsewhere. And this one is so heavy, I almost threw my arm out lifting it this morning. And I am very pleased to welcome Susan Musgrave to the program. Susan, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thank you. It's, it is very heavy. Somebody <laughs> in Toronto said it was heavier than the joy of cooking, which I, I like that as a quotation for the back think, of the next edition. I think it is. They're absolutely right. I've, I've been doing little arm lifts, yep. holding it all morning. Uh, oh. This It's called The Taste of Haida Gwaii. Food Gathering and Feasting at the Edge of the World. Mm-hmm. And uh, from looking at this book, and one of the comments, I think, or one of the, the the writing on it is, this could only be done by somebody who has been at the edge of the world, who has spent time there. Uh, did you know when you were you were in more remote areas that this was the kind of book you wanted to put together? Well, books sort of take place, they, they form holistically. You don't, you, you get an idea and then you live with it for a few years. And then Nick Rundle, who's the publisher at Whitecap, came to stay at my guest house, Copper Beach House in Masset. And, and I, I did a lot of cooking and with, I used a lot of local ingredients because being far away from the mainland, it, it's things that you can get in Vancouver on Granville Island, we can't. So you have to be very creative with, with, with your, what you cook. So you end up gathering and we have, a huge amount of, of seafood and, and all sorts of berries and, you know, things we can make that are interesting. So so Nick ate some of these dishes and said, oh, you should you should write a book about a cookbook. But I didn't really want to write a cookbook. I wanted to write a book about food and people and our relation to food and the stories around food. So I call it a love story with recipes. It's really what it is. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great way of describing yeah, it. Because yeah. you can get recipes anywhere these days. If you know how to read a recipe, you can cook. Um, that's, I think the, the trick is in, in selecting recipes that work. I have one friend who doesn't know what goes together, so she'll put um, you know, sugar and cinnamon with halibut and, because she got it out of the freezer instead of apples and then serve it for a dessert. And It's really hard to say to somebody, actually, cinnamon and sugar don't go with halibut <laughs> <laughs> if they've gone to the trouble to make a dessert. But you have to know what goes together. That's the sort of basic of cooking, what, what works and what doesn't. Or, or trial by error. You'll, you'll yeah. know soon enough. What... Yes, you will. <laughs> Um, the, the book, like you said, it, it, it does have recipes, but it is so much more than that uh, with stories. Uh, just flipping through, uh, you can't help but uh, see, uh, be stopped by, by headlines. If you can't shoot a deer, I would say any, anybody, you know, living in Metro Vancouver might, might agree. Well, I can't just go out and shoot a deer right at this moment. <laughs> That's, well, actually, we could if we're a different bylaws. <laughs> uh, but no, not really. I guess you can't go firing, shooting in cities. But um, the deer here were introduced. And they're a bit of a problem. They're very small deer. They're Sitka deer. And, but they eat, um, of course, all the wildflowers, so then there are no insects, and, and so then the, the birds' populations decreases. So, that, so I, I mean, I love the deer, but I, I have, I have, I'm torn about it because I also love wildflowers and, and birds. So uh, people, there's an open, I, no, the season isn't open. It used to be open, but now I think it's closed uh, this time of year for the, for the does because they're pregnant and then... And then, but you can hunt the as usual. The male species get to be hunted any time, pretty much. <laughs> I feel sorry for them, but that, that's what happens up here. So people will go. Mainlanders will come over and you know get sixteen, twenty deer bucks and take them back to the Prince George. I've seen them hanging. Um, it doesn't make much of a dent in the population. It, it is a it is a much different 
Um, it, it, yeah, <laughs> but I try to make the book something that people in the cities can use as well. I mean, you can forage in cities. There's a huge foraging movement in Seattle right now. They have a park in the center of uh, Seattle where people can just go and pick pick the different kinds of berries, and I don't know what else they've got, but New York, they had to close it down in Central Park because so many people were going and picking the mushrooms and things to grow there that they were depleting the, the sources. Um, so in, in Vancouver, I mean, we we have you have all sorts of things that grow up here. Along, and if you go down to the beach, you'll find um, sea spinach, you'll find uh, sea asparagus. You just have to know what you're looking for. But they're all there. I mean, I grew up on Vancouver Island, and a lot of the same things grow there as do here. I just didn't know you could eat them. We were always told, don't put that in your mouth. <laughs> it was growing naturally. <laughs> it had to come from the store. Uh, especially seaweed, which, uh, you know, here where there's so many types of seaweed, um, that are, like nori and things just grow. It's all there. Uh, you just have to know what to look for. And, and um, But people are becoming quite there's, – there's courses in it now and classes. I'm doing some – a few dinners in Vancouver, one at, um, that is at Barbara Joe's um, in sometime in April, and a couple at um, a Cook Culture, one in Victoria and one in Vancouver. And so they have chefs come in who prepare dishes from, from my book, and then the guests eat, have a feast. Sounds great. Yeah. So I'm bringing razor clams because that's probably something you can't get in Vancouver, but you can substitute ordinary clams, butter clams. Or, so I've made it, the book should be able to be used whether you're urban or rural. It didn't have to be that way. I didn't want to write just a, a book that was exclusively for a certain region because if cooking, is, so these days with fusion, you mean people are making all sorts of combinations from all around the world. I am flipping through again, and I just landed on a page that uh, for a recipe for elderflower liqueur. That sounds mm-hmm. nice. Yeah, and elderflower, another thing you can find anywhere. Just go out a little bit out of town, and it's just all everywhere. It's just that white flower. It's quite pungent smelling. The sorbet is beautiful, the elderflower sorbet. It's so intense in flavor. The liqueur, same thing. You can buy elderflower liqueur. It's about $70 for a bottle, but you could make your own. So just with vodka and elderflowers and sugar and water. Hmm. Very simple. Uh, the book, as you said, it's it's for everybody. It's not that you have to be in a certain region to to get it or to 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 be able to even use some of the recipes. Uh, but it does it does tell a lot of the history, or it brings people maybe some of the history of the Haida Gwaii area that they might not know. How important was it for you to make sure to include that? Oh, it's very important. The book's really about my community here, and there's so many contributors. I mean, all my neighbors, and there are fifty photographers, and mostly local people. Um, so it, it was that that's the whole point of the book is it was about about this place and as i say it's a love story because i've i've been here since the 70s and 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 love the, i i just love these islands and they're they're getting to be they, they get a lot of attention you know national geographic we were one of the world's 10 places to visit last last summer and because of our earthquakes and tsunami warnings and we're always in the news about something the haida culture is extremely strong um the monumental poles that people make. And, and I, I did a piece for Vogue magazine when they, they called me when my book came out. And as a result of that, I've had I've got guests coming from, from New York. People are very intrigued, I think, because we're, people are always looking for somewhere further away. I mean, Vancouver Island is for, pretty far away if you live in the east, but Haida Gwaii is even further, but as far as you can go north and west. Uh, Susan, we need to take a short break, but I want to continue talking about this. So, so when we come back, some more about a taste of Haida Gwaii. We are talking with author Susan Musgrave. More coming up. 
And continuing with author Susan Musgrave, the book A Taste of Haida Gwaii, Food Gathering and Feasting at the Edge of the World. It is one of the finalists on the BC Book Prizes list. Uh, and Susan, again, so many great stories and just passages in the book that catch you. I was uh, leafing through again and fishing with dad. And when I was growing up in the culinary dark ages of the 50s, salmon was the pink fish that skinny people ordered at high-priced restaurants. It was also what we ate when we were poor at the end of the month in the week leading up to payday. Things have changed for salmon. Yeah, definitely. And there are probably fewer of them, too, as a result. (laughs) Dad used to go fishing, rowing down Sansom Narrows, just between Vancouver Island and Salt Spring, and and get what we call grills, which I guess were baby salmon, which you probably couldn't get now without getting in trouble with fisheries, and then fry it up for breakfast. But yeah, salmon was not a delicacy. It was something that, uh, well, it wasn't part of our culture, I mean, Haida Gwaii always, Haida always ate, they lived on salmon. That was, um, they had salmon, they had berries, they had salmon and cedar was the sort of the root of the culture up here, which kept everybody warm and fed. And salmon is, of course, re- really good for you. I've learned how to cook salmon. I always cooked it too long, and it was always dry, and I didn't like it. But Bob Fraumani, who has the uh, you know, finest at sea, I think you've got one on Granville Island, amazing fisherman, has taught me that when you cook salmon, you don't do anything else. You don't try and make a, a creme brulee or you just watch the salmon and you always take it off before it looks like it's done. And of course, I think, oh, no, it's raw. I've got to take it off. But, and so I do, or I, I cook it, I, sorry, I, I, I cook it longer and then it's dry. But if I can make myself take it out of the pan when it still looks raw, it goes on cooking and it'll be perfect. I, I fall into the same camp as you. I've, yeah, I've no, overcooked many a salmon side in my day. Yeah, no, you, and you have to, it's really tricky. It's, I guess if you just do it all the time, it's like anything, the more you do it, the better you get at it. But uh, So I do try. And then, of course, it's all different thicknesses. You get a piece of salmon that's a quarter of an inch, and in the middle it'll be three inches. So what do you do then? You have to take off the, the thin part. It's, so it's tricky. So you do have to pay attention to it. It's something you can't just leave it like you could maybe a hamburger. You have to be <laughs> attentive. Yes, it's not, it's not passive cooking at all. No. Uh, you mentioned foraging and how it's becoming a movement and, and more people doing that no matter where, where you live. Do you have a favorite food or a favorite thing that you like to forage? I think I, I, love, I like pick, picking chanterelles. Uh, the, the mushrooms that are golden and, and the moss here is very green. So they're they're, they're the femme fatale of mushroom, I call them, because they, one you'll see one and then you look up and you see another, so you lure it into the woods and <laughs> you can be lost very easily picking chanterelles. Um, they're, it's hard to mistake them for, and they're just they're so easy to it. Once you've picked them, you you know what you're looking for, and it's there's so many here and they're beautiful and very tasty, and you can freeze them well and things like that. So I and the, I just like really I like getting out in the woods is why I like foraging. I, I it's nice to feel useful at the same time. You're getting some exercise when you're climbing over dead stumps and, and, and uh, windfalls. You, you, you get a real workout. So <laughs> yeah. You combine food, getting your food with getting some exercise. It's, it's good. In the cities, I think there are things, all sorts of green things like chickweed and stuff that's supposed to grow in the sidewalk. Not that I would necessarily pick it if it's in the sidewalk, but you, you know, there are all sorts of things that we think of as weeds that are edible. Um, and there are whole books written on them. When I was starting to research this book, I, I, we have a library here, where a catalog, you have to order books. And the, the holds on the books on foraging, there'll be 30, 35, 50 holds on all the books about wild foods, and none on a, the other cookbooks. So that told me something already, you know, and this was five years ago. 
Uh, you mentioned earlier, too, when talking about things as a kid, when you remember being told, don't put that in your mouth, don't eat that. Yeah. Mushrooms was, was number oh, one, yeah. I think. almost. I think there's almost a bit of a fear uh, when foraging for mushrooms because you, you're afraid and that voice comes back from your childhood yes. that it's going to poison you and kill you. Yes. Well, I, there were two women from Seashell who came up and they were they were mushroomers and they you know they really knew their stuff but they were picking all sorts of things i would never have dared pick um i know what chanterelles are i'm i'm 100 percent sure i mean there is a false chanterelle i shouldn't say 100 percent sure but it's it's um it you just it, you get an instinct for it but it's again how does that develop it's uh it's, it's and what they told me too is these women that what, when you die from mushroom poison, you know how you'll read that somebody who's eaten mushrooms all their life, wild mushrooms, suddenly dies. Well, there's some mushrooms that build up a toxin in your body, and so you could eat them for 50 years, and then the next time you have one, you fall over. But I don't know what those mushrooms are, so mm-hmm. I, I just eat chanterelles and hope they don't have that toxin in them. It's another case for everything in moderation. Yes. No, I think it's it's not that you can, you'll suddenly go out and eat a poison. You could. You could eat the, what's it called, angel of death or the... Amanita uh, panthera and, and, and probably or quite possibly die, but with ones that are edible, it's you, you'd have to uh, yes, it would be something would, would be going wrong in your body with with a, re- a reaction to them rather than it being the mushroom itself. I think now I'm not a mushroom expert. I just know I stick with what I what I know, and that, that is the rule of foraging. Don't don't pick anything that you're unsure of, uh, or run at least take somebody with you when you're going who knows what their who knows their stuff. That is probably very, very good yeah. advice. And don't pick near the road because of, of uh, toxins from cars. Um, you know, lots of things, poisons from, I guess, lead in the, in the gasoline and things. So you want to be, I think, about 100 yards back uh, away from the road. It's all there in my cookbook. Now, of course, I've forgotten it all. You know, <laughs> That's okay. It is written <laughs> down. Oh, yeah. How far am I supposed to be? We don't have to worry too much up here. There's not that much traffic. Yes. Yeah, little... The shaggy manes go right at the side of the road. I don't pick them because I think... They're just, you know, how, they've got to be covered in dust for one thing, and then there you know, must be all sorts of stuff they're picking up. But they just sprout out. They're really weird. They're like aliens. They break through the, the almost through the concrete at the side of the road. Hmm. Yeah, But no, I haven't. I don't eat those. I know people who do. But, um, Belitas, that's one I think they call Porcini. Is it Porcini? I never can pronounce Italian. <laughs> Porcini, Porcini, Porcini. Porcini, I yeah, think. Okay, thank you. Um, that those that's what we call bolete up here, and that's the same mushroom. So they're they're very prized and they're delicious. But even I, I do know how to find those as well, but they're rare. Um, well, at least I don't have a spot for them. So. But um, some of my other one of my other favorite stories. We had an old beachcomber up here, Paul Bauer, who we used to have exotic dancers in the singing surf. I think for one month <laughs> by nineteen sixty sixty nine or seventy, and he offered one of the dancers. 50 pounds of shrimp to spend the night with him and she turned him down so everybody had a big feast <laughs> on the beach instead but that's the kind of stories that you know just they're, they're all these sort of food is, and i have a hand peeled shrimp recipe in my book so. <laughs> we do get shrimp here too prawns out in the inlet very very nice well susan it is a fantastic uh, book for anybody that wants to learn more not even just not just the recipes but the background and the area uh, it is one of the finalists uh, in the bc book prizes thank you so much i appreciate so much you coming on the show this morning oh, you're very welcome thank you for having me on the show all right that is author susan musgrave and again the name of the book it's a heavy one a taste of haida gwaii food gathering and feasting at the edge of of the world. We will continue talking to BC Book Prize finalists on next Sunday.
I would say I would tell you who's coming on the show, but I don't know yet. But I will say that somebody on the list will be making an appearance uh, right here on the program. Just before we break for your 930 news headlines, I got a text on our buzz line. That's 604-331-BUZZ. And this is in response to what we were talking about earlier, which was the back and forth, the the stalemate, I suppose you could call it, between the six rafting companies and CP Rail in Golden. CP Rail saying they are no longer allowed to cross the tracks to get to the lower canyon portion of the Kicking Horse River. This even though the rafting companies have been doing this for 40 years without incident. And they're saying that now... It can no longer happen because Transport Canada has flagged it as unsafe. I got a text from a listener who says, I work on a train that goes through the area. The raft company should just cross anyway. No one will enforce it. It's in the middle of nowhere. I wondered about that myself. Is this a case of just keep doing it and see what happens? It's not as though it's monitored 24-7. It's not as though there are people looking or maybe there will be. But there you have it. A worker on a train says, just go ahead and do it. It's fine. Nothing's going to happen. No one's going to be enforcing it. We'll take a short break for your news headlines. When we come back, the author of Smart Risk, How to Do Smart Investing. She's been leading others to financial safety and security as an investment advisor, a portfolio manager. So we'll find out how we can get out there and enjoy Smart Risk. That's coming up next.